If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? GIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille. Hi, I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. TGIF, so glad to have you with us today. So glad to be working with bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. How are you doing today? You did, Benny, you need to be the guy with the clipboard going, take two, no, clap, wait, the clipboard. Wait. I got you. I got you. I do need one of those clipboards. Well, isn't there an actual name for the? Yeah, what is it? I, I know a guy who's going to know that. Yes, and so we we'll will ask, ask him. him. We will ask him. Good to have you with us again, Benny. Pleasure. This is a good time. We're we're a couple of boomers. We make no secret of that. No, nope. it's we right love, on the website. We are all about the boomer culture and trying to figure out all this this new content provided by the youngsters today and <laughs> in the meantime we just bump along struggling to try to make sense of it all but uh when it comes to pop culture a la the boomers you couldn't have a better guest today to just take a trip down memory lane and groove on all of that good information a first timer on on manson mitchell but uh you talked to him once on american road trip talk i yes, understand indeed. and so um very excited about our guest today. Jeffrey Mark has been called a walking encyclopedia of show business history. Honestly, you can't stump the guy. A singer, stand-up comedian in nightclubs and cabarets and an off-Broadway veteran, Jeffrey has hosted radio series, written comedy, and now writes and produces documentaries and reality shows for cable television. Jeffrey has also written three best-selling books devoted to Lucille Ball, Ella Fitzgerald, and Ethel Merman. Also a special shout out to Gary Allen for recommending Jeffrey to us. So without uh, further ado, and I don't even like that phrase, <laughs> welcome to Manson Mitchell, Jeffrey Mark. So happy to have you with us today. Wow, that guy sounds great. Oh, can't wait to have a conversation with him. Hey, getting too. a round of celebratory applause here. <laughs> Excellent. Very nice. Jeffrey, we're so thrilled to have you with us on Manson Mitchell for the full hour to talk about your trove and to, and to draw from that reservoir you have of uh, classic TV and movie knowledge that reflects your passion for those media. And we share it. We certainly can't compete with you when it comes to knowledge, but we know how to ask the right questions. So let's have some fun. Well, I love having my reservoir drawn. So let's get started with this. All Outstanding. Right. Shall I go first, Suzanne? Why don't you go first? Very good. Thank you. Uh, Jeffrey Mark, and I'm going to tee this up and you can just hit it as far as you can. What I have noticed, and it occurred to me in a kind of particularly strong way last night, I was getting this intuition. Oh, ask him about this. Here's the context that I will provide. After World War II, both movies and certainly television, which is what I want to focus on for the moment, TV shows. It seems to me that America has a penchant for introspection. And when we look at what are the seminal events of, in the lives of all of us, including those who are aged but still with us, 
World War II, TV comes into its own afterward, of course, particularly in the 50s and 60s. And what I found, Jeffrey, when I think back to shows of that era, World War II echoed in programs like Combat, like Rat Patrol, and like 12 O'Clock High, to name just three. But also, now that was the dramatic stuff, Jeffrey. But also, we got a big kick and a good laugh out of shows like McHale's Navy and Hogan's Heroes. There are so many stories to be told under that umbrella of post-World War II introspective television in America. And I would love to get your survey of that. Sure. It's a great question, too. For, for those of our friends and fans who are listening, the reason television doesn't really start after World War II is because all of our money and our scrap iron and our paper and everything we had as a country was going into World War II. So we could have had television all along. There just, there just wasn't the money or the resources to develop it. So as soon as the war ends in 45, in 46, television starts. And television can reflect what's going on in our world. Probably it does so a little better today, actually, than back then. And the reason for the World War II thing is we had just lived through this horrific thing. And uh, this was a way to entertain and remember and kind of heal from what we'd just been through. But also, it was already in the past. Television of the 40s and 50s and 60s didn't really do a good job of reflecting what was actually happening. There was very little about Korea, for instance. There were no sitcoms or adventure shows about Korea, but they could do it about World War II because it was over. We knew we won. So we, there, was, there was no question mark, oh, goodness gracious, are we going to survive this? And then as we got into the 60s with, with Vietnam, there's this whole genre of television that starts because they couldn't reflect what was happening in our society. Mikhail's Navy, which you mentioned, uh, was supposed to be an hour-long drama show. That's how the original pilot was shot. And it was, it, they did, no, no, we have, we have to have laughter here. We can't take this seriously. They couldn't reflect Vietnam, so they reflected the war. And because they couldn't talk about uh, protesting and the civil rights marches and all that was going on in our country, we had this great big fantasy phase, starting with My Favorite Martian and Bewitched and I Dream of Genie and even Hogan's Heroes is a fantasy. Nothing like that ever happened. We, we didn't have what you said about reality till All in the Family. But it did give us a lot of wonderfully written television. But it's as a writer, I can tell you, it's easier to write the thing when you already know you've won. If you're not quite sure what's going to happen, much harder to write. You're talking about the start of television in the late 40s. And my mother was actually on television in the late 40s. I have photographs that my grandfather photoed right off the TV. She was in a quiz show called The Models and the Reporters. <laughs> and so the reporters and the models were asked all of these questions. And of course, they expected the reporters to be brilliant and the models to be stupid. But my mother had an above average IQ. 
And so the models were mopping the floor with the reporters and it made for great humor on that quiz show. But there were also a lot of game shows early on in TV. It was like they were trying to figure out what to do with the time. So didn't you find in, in looking back at that, that it started with a lot of game shows and variety shows in the 40s and 50s? Well, they didn't know what to do in the beginning. Uh, when you start off with television, they, they could not get too many big celebrities to even try it. The, the people who were huge on radio didn't really want to go on television. They didn't know what would work. They were transitioning off of radio. What was radio filled with? Situation comedies, variety shows of one sort or another, the, 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 the dramatic types of shows and quiz shows. So the easiest thing to shoot is people sitting behind a desk, asking questions, being asked questions, uh, making people laugh. It was just so easy. So you start with really like from day one of stuff, CBS had a quiz show. I think they called it the quiz show. It was the very first one on television, but starting with winner take all in 1948, the first Goodson Todman show, which opened the door for what's my line. And I've got a secret and tell the truth and password and all the different quiz shows and panel shows that came after it. It was fun to watch. It was easy to shoot. It didn't cost a whole lot of money to put on. Uh, there was no blocking, me meaning um, they didn't need great big camera rehearsals to figure out who's going to stand where when you say this. It was fixed. They were behind a desk or a podium. so And, and they're enjoyable. I, I've got in my personal collection thousands of game shows, and I still enjoy watching them because the people they hired to be on them were true wits who uh, knew that they were on live television, knew how to be funny, and knew how to do sophisticated, slightly naughty humor that would keep the folks at home giggling, make, <laughs> make their evening more exciting. I was lucky to have met a lot of the people involved in the early game shows, Kitty Carlisle and Arlene Francis and uh, a lot of folks who were involved with it. Uh, it's one of my favorite things on television to watch those panel shows of celebrities being witty. I watched a lot of that myself as a, as a young girl. And I really enjoyed those things. It, it was also before they had, um, can't remember the name of the show. Okay. It, it was the precursor to the, the modern day kinds of, of trivia shows where um, I learned a lot. You know, when they would talk about different various states or various whatevers, it was like, oh, I didn't know that. How about a show like Concentration? Oh, yeah. Oh, that was good. Yeah. I watched Concentration. And we know the modern version of Jeopardy, of course, for decades now. Right. But there was the original Jeopardy that got people interested. And seemingly an endless supply of contestants from the New York City area. <laughs> <laughs> what they would do, depending on the network, was that they literally had uh, young men walking the street, bicycling the, street, the streets of New York City, looking for people who'd be interested to come in to try out to be on the show. Uh, that's how they were able to get so many people to come in. They were looking for contestants on to tell the truth. We need uh, two guys who look like Jeffrey Mark. Why don't you go out there and scour the streets and see if you can find 
people who. That's that's how they they were able to use the city. Uh, game game shows were very New Yorky, very uh, cosmopolitan. The mm-hmm. humor on them was sophisticated humor. You know, uh, Arlene Francis and Kitty Carlisle and Peggy Cass came out in evening gowns. The men came yes. all dressed up. Yeah, and uh, you said your mother had above average intelligence. So did these folks. Yeah. And they were able to go with whatever was happening, play the game really well, because you have to play the game or the show doesn't work. Plus yeah. be witty. And Arlene Francis used to laugh like, we don't really dress like this every day. We don't go to restaurants dripping in diamonds and wearing $5,000 dresses. It's for television. But the folks at home who never dress like this enjoy watching us do it. Very East Coast. The, the whole vibe of, of those game shows because that's where they were in that moment in time. This is so great. You see, you get talking with Jeffrey Mark and all of a sudden up bubbles an idea. Ooh, ooh, I'm, I'm sounding like Joey Ross now. Ooh, ooh, I've got <laughs> to ask just gonna, him about the- <laughs> just going to say that. Ooh, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell in- you about Joey Ross, but we'd be off the air. Oh, oh yes, God. I've heard a few things already. Absolutely. Hank Garrett, the sole surviving member of the Car 54, Where Are You cast, has been on our show a couple, a couple of, times, of times and yeah. a couple times more If we because he also had a wonderful movie career and yeah. we enjoy talking to him. Plus, he was Hank, a professional wrestler. Hank and I yes. are old friends. Great guy. Uh, but going back to the game show, the game show Controversy. Oh, Jeffrey, there you, you said they were looking for people who knew how to play the game well. Somewhere, there was a guy in a suit that decided, even if we bring in an academic and a, a brilliant one at that, we are going to make sure that he plays the game well. And thus, you had a huge, huge nationwide controversy. Well, what, 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 what you're talking about are the quiz show scandals. And uh, yes and no, because they, they were originally looking for people who were smart clever, witty, to play the game, to know their stuff. But after a while, the sponsors and the producers colluded, hey, you know what? Uh, This woman or this man is really good looking or the audience, we could feel they really liked this guy or we got letters. Because in those days, uh, the, the mail service was very quick, especially in New York City. Uh, you could get mail the next morning. You could mail a letter early in the morning and someone would receive it in the afternoon because there were yes. two mail services a day. Yeah, two, it, twice a day, morning yeah. and afternoon mail. I remember that growing up sure. in Chicago. Yeah. So uh, if if someone struck a note with the audience at home, they would go, Ooh, we need to keep this person around. The audience likes them. Or conversely, they hired someone because they were smart, but maybe they weren't all that good looking or maybe they sweat too much or not enough, or they got letters, you know, and I'm not trying to be offensive to anyone, but you know, get, get that person of color off the air, or he looks too Jewish, get rid of them or whatever anyone's prejudices were. They decided they would control it. They control the contestants to please the audience because the truth of the matter is it's a show. There is no, reality tv it's tv right Uh, even reality things being shot now i've i've produced them i know are controlled 
They're either controlled and manipulated or they're out and out scripted. And I've written some of these things. Well, back then they didn't think much about it. It wasn't that they were evil. It's that it's a show and we want the best ratings. You want to sell the most lipstick or the most shampoo or the most beer. And that just felt like, well, that's what we do. We're producers. It, it wasn't until the public found out, the public was outraged. You know, today, uh, some celebrity or other will say the wrong word or wrong turn of a phrase or, and for whatever reason, it's all over the media and, and people get outraged today. Well, it happened back then too. And the American public was outraged finding out that these shows had been controlled to whatever degree. And they all had to the networks, fire producers, uh, cancel shows, and make sure that from that point forward, all the shows were as legitimate as possible. Many ones who didn't really get caught in that were Mark Goodson and Bill Todman, who did all these game shows we're talking about with celebrities. Because you won like 30 bucks or 40 bucks, there was no reason to control it. Contestants didn't stay on week after week after week after week. So those things went unscathed. They, they just kept going. Hmm. Want to go ahead and get on another topic. Gary and I had a little bit of a conversation and a chance to think about this. We're springing this on you and you haven't had a chance to think about it. So we'll, we'll tell you what our findings were. But one of the things that we were curious about is what happens to the arc of a television show when the real actor dies. Oh yeah. What happens to the show? And what were some of the things that we were coming up with? You said the most recent one that we could come up with was Carol Susie from Big Bang Theory. But then we started going backwards in time. Well, we did. Yes, as a matter of fact, Jeffrey, it, it, pardon me if I polish my knuckles for just a quick second here. I told someone who is a pop culture expert, literary expert uh, of the modern era as well, that uh, he thought I was crazy when I said, I don't know why I'm saying this to you. I said this on air, but they are going to write Mrs. Wallowitz out of that show because the character, Mrs. Wallowitz, is going to die. We didn't think the show was in real production. life. Though. Right. And I didn't yeah. know why I was saying yeah. that. I'm just, but I'm telling you, Mrs. Wallowitz is going to die there. And he said, no, no, I can't imagine that they would do something like that. Well, Mother Nature and Father Time intervened, right. I'm sorry to say. And so that happened. But how about the times when you don't expect it or you see it coming and don't know what to do about it? Case in point, it came to me when we were discussing this a couple of days ago, the wonderful B. Benaderet, when she actually passed away, you've got a hit show on your hands, Petticoat Junction. If you're the producers, what do you do? As soon as you brought up the topic, the very first thing I thought of was Petticoat Junction. It's ah. probably the number one point at for this 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 was not handled the best and uh, transparency linda canning is a friend i adored petticoat junction growing up watching it and for the, again for those of us who are listening who don't know what we're talking about uh petticoat junction was a wonderful sitcom a top rated sitcom it was a spin-off off of the beverly hillbillies and b benaderet who had been the voice of betty rubble and gracie allen's best friend on the burns and allen show and the all kinds of voices on Warner Brothers cartoons got cancer. 
And right in the middle of expanding the show with new characters, she had to stop working. They had to write around her eight or nine episodes that she didn't appear in. She came back to work, collapsed, and died. And that was the end of that. And what they chose to do was nothing. They didn't address it. They didn't write about it. They didn't, they referred to her on the very last episode once. Gee, if mom were here, she'd know what to do. But other than that, they didn't replace her. They didn't say she died on the show or anything. And it killed the show because Mm -hmm. had they addressed it in some fashion, the audience, I think, would have been satisfied. But they didn't. So they just walked away. When Aunt Clara died on Bewitched, there was no mention of her no longer being there. Uh, on the other hand, when Mrs. Kravitz died, they replaced her with a different woman. And you yes. know, it didn't work. Yeah. Uh, we, we think that there's all these Mrs. Kravitz episodes of Bewitched with Sandy Gould. There are some, but uh, weeks and weeks would go by and there was no Mrs. Kravitz. She couldn't do it. She was the wrong person for the role. I talked to Bill Asher about this. He said, yeah, we miscast and she played it badly, and we just sort of wrote the Kravitzes out unless we really needed them. The best thing probably for a show is if an actor dies, address it. Either kill the character off or find some wonderful way to replace them so that the audience is satisfied. You know, we're not stupid, and we get emotionally invested in these shows. And when you don't respect your audience, that's when just... The shark gets jumped and that's the end of that. You know, talking about emotional investment, uh, Gary has a yardstick by which he judges shows. And that is, does he care about those people or not? And every once in a while we're watching something and he's like, I don't care what happens to these people. And and we stop watching it. But when you are have that emotional investment in in certain people, you that's when you really want to stay with it. What happens to them? You know, how does this, how is this going to turn out? And, and you do stick with it. So that, that was interesting that, that you said that. Case in point, what Suzanne's talking about, Jeffrey, I would be embarrassed to tell you exactly how many hours, and it, this is about six nights a week going on a decade now, how many hours I've spent watching and enjoying King of Queens reruns. I just love King of Queens. They're family to me. They visit me in my living room six nights out of seven. However, when I watched, or I should say attempted to watch and enjoy Kevin Can Wait, I said to Suzanne, if a tornado comes and takes up everybody in the cast and the house with them, I don't care. I just don't like this show. It doesn't mean anything to me, me, neither do the people in this cast. I mean, I'm sure they're all wonderful actors, God bless them, but the show itself left me cold, and apparently that opinion was shared by an awful lot of people who did not tune in. You're so right. You're so right. I had a conversation, gosh, a couple decades ago, actually, with Mercedes Manzanares, who was the original casting person on I Love Lucy, and she said, you know, it's true, I Love Lucy was brilliantly written, and of course you had wonderful directors and wonderful production values. But one of the reasons why we're still watching this thing so many years later is because we care about Lucy, Ricky, and Fred and Ethel 
heck, we care about Mrs. Trumbull. And she said, when you've got a show, yes, the writing has to be on the page. The next thing is it has to be brilliantly cast. The actors are coming into people's homes and bedrooms and bathrooms and closets, and we want to have them there. So you've got to find people who are warm, who people feel welcoming. Yes, please. Would you please come sit down and have a cup of coffee with me? And uh, I Love Lucy and other shows, brilliantly, brilliantly, brilliantly cast. The actors make the show. Things like MASH. MASH was not brilliantly written right in the beginning, but it was brilliantly cast. And the people who weren't so brilliantly cast left the show after a couple of years and they recast more brilliantly. And there you have all those seasons of MASH. It's very that was, important. That was one of those shows where they could change out the characters easily because people came and went from Korea in their service and it worked. I don't think it works in a lot of places to replace people, but that was a show that actually replaced quite a few people and the, the show continued to be very popular with new people joining it and old people leaving it. And that was one I watched consistently. Yeah, Loretta Swit is a good friend. And uh, we've talked for hours about how her particular character, uh, Margaret Hotlips, even that they didn't call her Hotlips anymore and called her Margaret, how mm -hmm. they allowed her character to develop through excellent writing, but also what she brought to the table. And she had ideas about the character and wanted the character to develop the Mary Tyler Moore show. All those characters started off kind of cardboardish, but as the shows went on, every single character got to grow and change and develop. And even you know, the Ted Baxter character, we grew to like these people. We wanted to spend Saturday night with them because the, the actors brought that to their roles. It really is, it's casting, casting, casting. And sometimes someone can be brilliant on one show and, and not so brilliant on another. Or two actors have incredible chemistry. You change one out, put somebody else in, the chemistry just isn't there anymore. And before we take our one and only break of the hour, let me put a bow on MASH anyway. Uh, we could talk about that all day, but... Um, when you look at the characterizations and the development of them, did Larry Linville look at it and go, man, you know, all these folks are developing these characters and I feel like I've taken this train as far as I can. What happened to him? Combination of things. Uh, they didn't quite know how to develop him. Sometimes sitcoms, the, the very premise of a sitcom, it's what they call premise heavy, meaning yeah, this is a great idea. And I'll use one sitcom for the example. This is a great idea. And they go on the air and they go, uh, what now? The Brady Bunch. The, the story was supposed to be, as they told us every week at the beginning of the show, about the blending of two families in the late 1960s. Well, you know what? They came up with 13 or 14 really good shows about those two families blending and then they didn't know what to do. And I, I've discussed this with Sherwood Schwartz, the creator. And he said, you know what we did? We came back for the second season and the show wasn't really about two families blending anymore. 
In fact, the rest of the seasons, they don't even mention they're blended. They don't mention stepmother or stepbrother. We had a show about a large modern family reflecting the styles of the moment. That was what the show became about. With MASH, the Hot Lips and, and Major Burns thing kind of got written out. They, they, they had no place to go with it. Yeah. So they they yeah. realized what they have with Loretta, who's an incredible actor, and wrote to showcase her. Larry Lindell was a very nice man, but he didn't have the, the, the chops to grow with it. Uh, Larry Larry could be funny, and, and but he wasn't able to bring to the table enough to make Frank grow. So they just easier to get rid of him and uh, put the show in a different direction. That's the bow, Gare. Real world decision making in the world, in the make-believe world of television. Jeffrey Mark is our guest. As I say, you can't stump the man. He is a huge reservoir, a trove of information, show business history, particularly of the classic period, which fortunately, thanks to syndication and technology, remains with us still. And Jeffrey will remain with us still. After this break, we'll get back to talking more of the same. This is just fascinating stuff. We are Manson Mitchell. Jeffrey Mark is with us, and so are you. Thank goodness for all of the above. We'll be right back after a couple of minutes. It's Seattle's home of Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. More and more these days, it feels like sports are losing out to hype. Who dissed who? Who signed the fattest contract? Who got busted for cheating? Lost 2 is the unique capacity sports have to inspire us, to unite us. Well, great news, sports fans. Sports are still being played for the right reasons. They're still as entertaining as they are character building. You just have to know where to find it. And you only have to look as far as your local Washington high school. You know, the place where the games are exciting, concessions are affordable, and the parking is free where the emphasis is on hustle and heart instead of hype. If you prefer real, honest-to-goodness sport played for all the right reasons, you'll find it at your hometown high school, High School Sports. Games are being played this weekend at a Washington high school near you. Okay, everybody, who's in? 
This message presented by the Washington Interscholastic Activities Association and the Washington State Secondary Athletic Administrators Association. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Jeffrey Mark for the first time, who is considered a walking encyclopedia of show business history. Perfect for Oscar season. On Saturday, Manson Mitchell spend two hours with Eileen Grimes, one hour on our show and one hour on hers. It's what's your sign all over again. Bringing you mastery and mystery one hour at a time since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Self-help, healing, spirituality, and more on Alternative Talk, 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell. And our guest this hour, Jeffrey Mark. Gary likes to call him the walking encyclopedia of show business history. And he knows an awful lot. What he doesn't know isn't worth knowing. So we are very happy to be picking his brain today about early television, baby boomer culture, and all that good stuff. If people want to connect with you, Jeffrey, do you have a website or a place where people can go and learn more about you? They can go on to Facebook and Good. look me up, Jeffrey Mark, G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y, Mark. I have another page up for my my radio show, Jeffrey Mark Plays Ella, which is uh, an hour every week where I play her music on a theme and talk about it. So they can get me either at the... Uh, Jeffrey Mark plays Ella page or just straight to me. Okay. Excellent. Facebook, Jeffrey Mark, G E O F F R E Y. Gary, I got a question unless you've got one that's hot and burning that you need to ask. Well, it's hot and burning and I hope it's just a question, but anyway, (laughs) go ahead and ask yours first and we'll see how I do over here. Okay. One of the things that uh, Gary and I were talking about just this morning is that there are a few shows, and he mentioned King of Queens. Uh, we have on our late night TV, uh, you know, Two Broke Girls. You can, About any day of the week, almost any station, you can find uh, Big Bang Theory. We What we noticed is that there are shows that are on almost perpetually. MASH, you can find MASH any day of the week. So there are these shows that are on perpetually, but what about some of those old shows that we might want to see that you never see and you might think about them. And, and like one of the old ones that we were thinking about was evening shade. That was a very sweet little show with Burt Reynolds. And so, you know, or something like the prisoner, there are shows that we would like to see that don't get repeated. And some of these others go for years and years and years. And you just finished the last episode. Now you're studying the first episode. Frasier comes to mind. You know, we, we finished the last episode, 11th season. Now we're starting season one, episode one. They're, they're just on a rotator. But what about getting some other old shows in there? Why don't, why don't the syndicators do that? There's about 17 different answers to your question. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a few until you, you get bored with the answers. Okay. One is there, there really is next to nothing that's called syndication anymore because syndication used to mean that a show that was on, there were only three networks, CBS, NBC, ABC, was then sold to local stations for them <clears throat> to rerun those things during the day, late at night, in their evening programming, whether it was a network affiliate or it was just a local station in a large city. 
today there's 9 million platforms out there and 9 million cable channels that rerun things. So for instance, the prisoner is being run on Amazon prime. If you want to go ah. see it, you have to get Amazon prime to get the prisoner. Okay. So that's one thing. Another is the rule of thumb used to be there have to be 100 episodes. They won't sell the thing into syndication or to a platform unless there are a hundred things produced. So you're not watching the same 35 shows over and over again. The only example where that is not true is the honeymooners. There were 39 episodes made of that show as a show, as opposed to it being a sketch inside of a larger Jackie Gleason variety hour. And those 39 got rerun and have been rerun and continue to get rerun over and over and over and over and over again. So you, you got to have the hundred to show. The show had to have been popular. If it wasn't a great big hit, you're not going to see it again and again and again. Hmm. Uh, and sometimes shows went into syndication and they didn't do well. For whatever reasons, they just didn't do well. Where other shows maybe weren't the great big hit on TV, but for some reason in syndication, people loved it. Look what happened to Star Trek. It wasn't popular enough to get beyond three seasons. It went into syndication. It's become mm -hmm. part of the American fabric now, Star Trek. It's on every night. So it just <laughs> depends on the public too. It's, it's about us. What mm -hmm. do we relate to? What do we want to watch at 1130 at night? Uh, yes, live long and prosper. So mm -hmm. that um, what do we want to watch? Who do we want? If we're in bed, and I don't, I don't mean to be naughty, but who do we want in bed with us? And <laughs> a lot of people wanted Leonard Nimoy. Uh, perhaps they didn't want Burt Reynolds, at least not on that show. Evening Shade did not do well in syndication. But what about Shatner? What about Bill? Yeah, I mean, yeah. hey. Hey, no, I'm, I'm an enormous, okay. enormous trekker. <laughs> Uh, I was just using Leonard to not talk about Bill because everybody else does. Correct. <laughs> or the Tribbles. Or the Tribbles. And he's chugging along at age 90 <laughs> right. yeah, now, exactly. by the way. <laughs> or the Tribbles. I love Tribbles. Well, you get Jeffrey, you've given us an opening here. Suzanne, I mean, he mentioned the man himself. you got to tell the story about your mom. Oh, which one? Oh, Leonard Nimoy? <laughs> yeah. Oh, she had dinner with Leonard Nimoy. Cool. Um, in Chicago, he, he came during the Star Trek days. He was making a Chicago appearance. And uh, at the time, she was um, dating a television director. And the director was in charge of escorting Leonard Nimoy around Chicago. So they had dinner together. She had some pretty interesting things happen in her life. And getting together with him was uh, one of them. Back Back to our program. <laughs> <laughs> Thought that deserved to be mentioned. But I understand what you're saying about the 100 shows. And there are shows that had definitely less than 100 that I, besides the Honeymooners, that I would certainly like to see back again. I understand they would be rerun more often. But I guess on my wish list, if I were running the world, I'd bring back a little bit more variety because I do see the schedule showing the same things over and over again. And I get tired of it. I mean, there are just shows I'll just, you know, go fat and I go to bed. I don't want to watch them like for the millionth time. And, uh, and so I, I figure there are so many good shows out there that used to be, but 
I also get this idea that even if the show wasn't extremely popular at the time, it could be later on revisiting something from the 60s or the 70s. I don't need to see any more episodes of Andy Griffith. Oh, my God. I mean, that is just so tired and worn out. And And yet the audience loves it. uh, Why you're see, but that's why you're seeing it. Because yeah. the audience loves it. Uh, not everybody who's listening. Well, okay, maybe because you're listening to this show, maybe you are. So we know who you are out there. But not <laughs> everybody out there is a classic TV geek. And mm. they find one show. And go, oh, yeah. Because for them. And I, I've said this more than once about I Love Lucy. It's comfort food. I'll, I'll use Lucy as an example. Besides the brilliant Miss Ball and the brilliant Mr. Arnez and, and Mr. Frawley and Miss Vance and all the writers and directors and the wonderful, and I've met every single one of them and interviewed them for my book. But when you watch I Love Lucy, when you see that heart come on, we're able to get away from whatever is troubling us and get into the Lucy world. Those clothes, those furnishings, that background music, it's just we're drawn into a different universe. And we know that no matter what goes on in 28 minutes, all of those problems are going to get solved. And we don't have to do anything about it except sit there and watch it happen. No one's going to die. No one's going to really lose their job. No one's going hungry. And in the end, Lucy and Ricky are going to kiss and make up and Fred and Ethel aren't going to kill each other. And we feel it's like eating a bag of Oreo cookies. It's comfort food. And for some people, the make believe of the Andy Griffith show, the reality of which could never have happened that, that town in the South Mm -hmm. where only Andy and Gomer and Goober speak with a Southern accent. Nobody else (laughs) does. A town in the South that has, no black people <laughs> right. uh, and, and no Mexicans uh, didn't exist. Yeah. Uh, this, this town of people, none of whom are married. Nobody in Mary Mayberry gets married. They're all single. <laughs> uh, the women, so the women have no incomes, but they own houses. They're, it's a wonderful place to live, <laughs> but it didn't exist. But to people who hmm. come from the South, it's comfort food for them. It's, it's a stylized, idealized version of what they wish their childhoods had been yeah. like. And yeah. they're able to zone out for those 28 minutes and go, all right, I'm going to have some cornbread here and enjoy myself. Yes, that, that's absolutely true. And it was Andy Griffith who said late in his life that the setting of Mayberry, idealistic as it was, took place, the production of the show took place in the 1960s, but he felt that the mores were more evocative of the 1930s. Yes. There was a simplicity. And Andy's show was brilliantly cast. So we grew to like these people. Yes. Even though they didn't necessarily get along behind the scenes, we grew to like these people. Hmm. Well, it was George Lindsay Goober who said that you looked forward to that call after the show aired on network television there on CBS. You got a call the next day. You were happy because he was happy. If you didn't get the call, you didn't want to go to rehearsal. (laughs) 
May I tell an Andy Griffith story? Please yes. do. Yes. Okay. Uh, Don Knotts and I were friends. And uh, when Don passed away, there was a memorial service, you know, a private one, an in, in industry memorial service for Don at the Writers Guild Theater in uh, Beverly Hills. And uh, a lot of the people who were still alive, obviously, the dead ones didn't come, but the live ones <laughs> showed up. And uh, Andy was there. And one of the most touching stories I've ever heard, actually, Andy talked about the show and that he had mo he mostly because of Matt Walk had moved back to the East Coast and was living there and sh shooting it there. He said, but when Don got sick, he said, I began to spend more and more time on the West Coast again so I could spend time with him. And Andy was a frequent visitor to Don in the hospital. He said, I visited Don one day. He said, I don't know what came over me, but I just got this notion that I had to get in bed with him. He said, and I moved Don over and I literally laid down next to him and put my arms around him. He said, and Don died in my arms. Oh my gosh. That is quite traumatic. And then, and you know, he got emotional. Perhaps those of you who are listening are getting a little choked up right now. <clears throat> and Andy said something that was uh, not usual out of his mouth. He said, you all know I'm a Christian man. I am a believer. Well, my friend Don was not a believer. And I was taught that unless you were a believer, you weren't going to heaven. He said, but I'm here telling you, Don was not a believer, but I know that Don went to heaven which was very, Andy never talked talk like that in any kind of public fashion. Mm. Just to say that, you know, my religious beliefs don't cover this, but I believe it anyway. Uh, the audience was floored by that. Huh. Thank you for sharing that with us. That's, that's, that's a very poignant story. <clears throat> we have about uh, six or seven minutes here, Jeffrey. I did want to get into one controversial bit we'll leave we're going to leave it on one note or another and you're definitely you just say the word you're coming back i have plans for you jeffrey mark but when we talk about uh, tv especially the early days of tv let's go back to the 50s we talk about the strength of writing how if you're going to have a great show you need strong writers mm -hmm. please tell us jeffrey about the apparently quite abrasive situation faced by the great one himself, Jackie Gleason, and one of his writers in particular, a young up-and-comer by the name of Neil Simon. Oh. <laughs> wow. Um, well, Neil is probably better known for writing for Sid Caesar. Jackie, like all the comedians of the 50s, writers came and went and came and went because... When you had an hour-long show back then, it was 55 minutes of material. There were very few commercials in shows. So writers got written out very quickly. Uh, it was very, very, very hard to write for Jackie. His style of working didn't work for anybody but Jackie. They had producers, but Jackie was in charge. They had writers, but Jackie was in charge. He had other actors but Jackie wouldn't rehearse. So you have actors having to rehearse on their own without Jackie. Then Jackie would come in. There'd be a stand-in doing all of his stuff. 
you sit and watch it. You go, all right. And then they were on the air live. And Jackie and the actual cast had barely rehearsed anything together. Uh, I, I have to admit, if you have a specific story about Neil Simon and Jackie Gleason, you've stumped me because the stories I've heard about Neil all have to do with writing uh, for Sid Caesar. What I know, and I'm tongue-tied here because I don't think it's possible to stump you, Jeffrey, but what I will say is that I have read in a couple of different places, and I believe it shows up in a Jackie Gleason biography that I will need to check out, that Neil Simon once said, I decided that I could spend the rest of my career writing for a blankety-blank like Jackie Gleason, or I could write for myself. And he chose to follow his own creative impulses and the rest is history, including Broadway and movie history. But he finally found that, that if he was going to go as far as he thought he could, he could not remain in the shadow of Jackie Gleason. Jackie Gleason, who, if you've ever watched an episode of The Honeymooners, the original 39 episodes, at the end of every one of them, you see big and bold, the entire supervision is in the in the care of in, uh, entire production supervised by Jackie Gleason. So nobody had any doubts about who was in charge of that show. Well, Neil Simon did not write any of those 39. Right. Uh, if he worked for Jackie, it would have been on the variety show after the 39, because before the 39, he was under contract to Sid Caesar. Um, it, it is a, a very true thing working for the men and women of 1950s variety shows, you had to have nerves of steel because this is all live. They all have egos and people came and went. I don't just mean the writers. I mean, the stars, there's 9 million variety shows of the 1950s and very few of them really stuck around for a long time. People got written out or you have a comedian who's very funny with his own material uh, for like three weeks. And then he's run out of his material. And now people like Doc Simon came in and wrote, but they couldn't capture it or the comedian couldn't do what the writers wrote for him or her. So um, you had a lot of writers who wrote for early television and said, the heck with this, I'm going to write movies or I'm going to write uh, dramatic shows or I'm going to write the world's best novel or I'm going to Broadway which Neil Simon did. Uh, I don't think Jackie, I don't think there's like a story of how Jackie and Neil didn't get along. I think Neil was pointing to the kind of star that he did not want to work for. He wouldn't publicly denigrate Sid. Neil never talked about Sid's drug use and alcoholism. And it was very hard working for Sid. And Sid was a friend of mine. I'm not saying he wasn't a wonderful man once he got clean and sober. But Jackie was difficult. Uh, Sheila McRae told me all kinds of stories working with Jackie that uh, are not necessarily very nice. Lucille Ball and Jackie had trouble working together because of his attitude towards work. I can't repeat the language that flew between Miss Ball and Mr. Gleason when they did a special together in the 70s because he wouldn't do the work. And she was all about doing the work. So, uh, I, yes. But I, I don't think those quotes evidence a single thing that happened. Just an attitude against 
why are you making this so difficult? We're all working so hard to making you look good. Why are you making it even more difficult for us to do that? Abbott and Costello wouldn't even meet their writers. People wrote their variety shows and never met them because they didn't want to meet the writers. They wanted to believe that they came up with all of this stuff themselves. It's very quirky to be a comedian week after week after week. Well, thank you for that. I think your explanation is the one that makes the most sense to me as regards Jackie Gleason and Neil Simon. We're about two minutes away from closing, Jeffrey. So let me just throw this out to you. Suzanne and I, there honor the memory of Ed Sullivan. We were, I mean, my God, we grew up, you know, the Beatles, and it goes on from there and before their time, Ed Sullivan, Ed Sullivan. What happened and what is the prospect of the return of variety shows? It seems to be a relic. It's a relic for a few reasons. And you, and Ed Sullivan is the perfect example. We were kind of culturally homogeneous back in the 50s when the variety show was big. The unions did not demand tons of money for things. It's number one, homogeneous culture. Number two, and talent developed properly to be on those shows. Ed Sullivan had a wonderful variety show. It was the closest thing to vaudeville on television. And he had on almost every big Broadway star, every big singer, pop singer, jazz singer, country singer, every stand-up comedian, along with jugglers and dancers and elephants and all the other things one used to find in vaudeville. But the problem was in the 60s, as rock and roll became popular and rock became popular and the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, well, you'd have on the same show, Ethel Merman and Sergio Franchi and the Rolling Stones. And the people at home didn't want to watch Ethel Merman or, or they didn't want to watch the Rolling Stones. Yeah. And the audience got fractured as our culture got <clears throat> fractured. Today, I, I had this conversation with Carol Burnett I'll tell you in 15 seconds. She said, okay. it's too expensive today. You can't mm. have a 27-piece orchestra. You can't have a chorus. You can't have dancers. You can't do it anymore. That's the bottom line. Very good. Jeffrey Mark, I'm honored that you would join us. You are a trove. You are the maestro. And we look forward to talking to you again and again. So please say you'll come back. I will only come on as often as you ask me. All right. Hey, that's the deal. We have, we have more questions. So you <laughs> will be answers. back. All right. Thank you for being with Jeffrey us Mark, today. Everybody. Stay tuned. We have the Christine Upchurch show followed by the Susan Harmon experience and then American Road Trip Talk with host Gary Mance. We'll be back tomorrow, 10 a.m. Pacific, right here for another edition of Mance and Mitchell. Let this be the start of your great weekend, everyone. <laughs>